Today on a special edition of Peace Talks Radio, compelling excerpts from the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We'll hear from Vietnam veterans about their journeys back to Vietnam to meet their former enemies. Tom Tien was a Viet Cong, the former enemy. He greeted us with a big smile and hugs, and he wants to hear your story. He told us his story. We shot him, left him for dead, but he held no grudge. Also, meet prison inmates who reformed their lives with the help of a special in-prison program. When you find someone to treat you like a human being, not like you are someone to be thrown away, it uh, has an impact on you, Curl, and it had a great impact on me. Plus other highlights from our episodes on Nobel Prize winner Leo Jabo, a school-based domestic violence prevention program, promoting a peace economy, and improving communication and tolerance between religions. That's all today on Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. In 2011, a remarkable addition to the National Mall in Washington, D.C. was opened, the new headquarters for the U.S. Institute of Peace. USIP was created by an act of Congress in 1984 to be a nonpartisan, federally funded institute to study and promote peacemaking internationally. Our Suzanne Kreider headed to the site for a tour as the new building was opening. I'm going to walk back up north on 23rd Street and go in the door so I can meet Robin West. He's going to give me a tour of the building. Let's see. They're opening the door. Hello, Robin. Hi, Hi. come on in. Great. I'm Welcome Suzanne. to the headquarters of the U.S. Institute of Peace. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to give me this tour. We're entering at the street level, and we're walking up a bit of a spiraled staircase. Where are we going next? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to enter into uh, what will be known as the Congressional Pavilion, which looks out into the Great Hall. It's a very dramatic space, as you can see. It's a a soaring space uh, from uh, floor to ceiling is seven stories tall. The ceiling is in the sculptural shape of a dove. We believe this building is going to be three things. It's going to be a working building where the work of the Institute takes place. It's going to be an educational building, but it's also going to be a symbol. And one of the things that's important is that uh, if you come over Memorial Bridge at night, which is the gateway to Washington, and I would argue it's the most beautiful man-made entrance to any city in the world, when you come over at night and you see the Lincoln, the Jefferson, and the Washington monuments, this will be the fourth thing you see. We think that's very powerful. The other thing that's important is we're located just diagonally across the street from the Vietnam Memorial and other war memorials. And the notion that the sacrifices that people made over the years in all these wars often was for peace and so that their families in this country could live in peace. This is a very powerful statement. Uh, And symbolism matters on the mall. The mall is all about, it, it is a national symbol of our values and our history. And we think this is a new and powerful symbol. It's a gorgeous space. It has a very sleek, uh, somber feel to it because it's basically all white and tan. We're just at dusk, so we're seeing the sunset through this gorgeous expanse of windows. This glass wall, um, one of the things that's it's very powerful is you look over here and you see the Lincoln Memorial lit up at night. And where this building is very unusual in Washington is that it brings the outside in. This is fabulous. This is just amazing. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. But it's, as, you, <laughs> as you can see, it brings the outside in. It is. It's like there's no edge, really. 
Well, that's, as I say, there's a seven-story wall of glass. Uh, when you go upstairs and you look out, you can see uh, um, uh, Arlington. Uh, you can see Kennedy's grave. You see Memorial Bridge. Uh, it's, it's one of the most dramatic locations in the city. It actually was built uh, on time, on budget. How much did the building cost? The building uh, to this stage is about $160 million. It's been a public-private partnership. Tell us about the architect. The architect is an architect named Moshe Safdie, um, who had been head of the architecture department at Harvard. Uh, the most famous building he did was Yad Vashim, which is the uh, memorial in, uh, in Israel. We're down on the street level where the education center will be. Tell us a little bit about that. What kind of exhibits will be here that the public can see? What we want to do is to engage the public. Uh, we want to engage students and, and young adults uh, about there is a big world out there and that they can make a difference in that world. And we want to show them ways that uh, people can contribute to peace, whether it's George Mitchell and the peace in Northern Ireland uh, or a woman uh, who brought peace in Uganda. Uh, but what we want to do is to dramatize uh, and engage people and show them um, what they can do. One of the things we think is also very important that we've learned along the way here is that, frankly, a lot of kids, a lot of these students and young adults, they're not very interested in going to museums because they can get a lot of their experiences online. And so what we want this building to be is to be a, a physical and virtual destination. And we're designing a, a very extensive um, new uh, website to reach out to people. This is about the future. And the future, not of the United, just the United States, but the United States in the world. See pictures of the USIP headquarters and hear more from this show by visiting our website, peacetalksradio.com. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're featuring compelling excerpts from our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution like our episode that explored a program called Soldier's Heart that helps U.S. war veterans with their war-related post-traumatic stress disorders by, among other things, arranging for return visits to places where they fought. Our Carol Boss talked with two Vietnam War-era veterans about their journeys back to Vietnam to meet their former enemies. First Tommy Laughlin and later Al Plapp. I couldn't really conceive of going back without being armed until... Uh, I went to a, a workshop with Dr. Ed Tick, and he had a what he uh, terms a spiritual approach to recovery from these issues. And as soon as uh, Dr. Tick talked about the soldier's heart, I stepped right up and went back, and haven't regretted a I haven't regretted a thing about it. When you returned. How were you first received by the Vietnamese? What do you remember about that? It was healing in itself, just to step down on the ground and not be afraid. And they are a very gracious people. Mm -hmm. Al Plapp, what happened when you met Vietnamese vets for the first time on your return trip? Well, there was always just a little bit of anxiety um, because the last thing you recalled were rockets still going off and people shooting. So you went back and uh, you had just a – intellectually, I was fine. But emotionally, the imprint was always there. When I stepped on the ground, 
I was able to see smiles and to see the graciousness of those people that I had experienced a long time before that. And in, in a sense, it felt like, yeah, I know these people. It's like family. Were you meeting with uh, the Viet Cong vets, the North Vietnamese vets, and what kinds of things did you talk about if, if you did meet with them? Well, our first uh, encounter was going down to the Mekong Delta to Tom Tien's place, and Tom Tien was a uh, Viet Cong. Uh, he was the former enemy. He greeted us with a big smile and hugs. I mean, that's, uh, you know, you kind of go, wow. Um, and he wants to hear your story. He, uh, he told us his story. We shot him, left him for dead. He was uh, treated for like nine months, as I remember, um, in the Coochie Tunnels and over in there. Um, but he held no grudge. He uh, really wanted to meet the person that shot him to say that he held no grudge, that he forgave him. What do you think is so different about how the Vietnamese seem to heal from war and forgive um, as compared to what you experienced or have seen in American vets? Basically, they fought for their homeland. They fought for their culture. They fought for their families. They fought for an ideal. They fought for a way of life. We were over there because it was a political war. It was an intellectual war. We didn't have a reason really to be there. And we were told to just go out. So all our reason for being there, our sole reason for being there, was to survive. And they don't have PTSD because they were fighting from the heart. They were fighting from the soul. Tommy Laughlin, was there an activity that you participated in on your healing journey that was especially significant for you, for your healing? To visit a kindergarten that Americans have helped to found and uh, uh, keep going to, to help people work and make their lives better in Vietnam and to be to visit these children and have them sing to you and treat you as honored guests and patrons uh, was just marvelous. These you know uh, before uh, in '67 when I was there, everybody was in danger. Nobody was safe in that country. Not women. Not children. Certainly not soldiers. Uh, but to see those kids and to uh, for them to welcome us like they did and to know that they didn't have to go out in uh, in the yard or the home and, and be in danger from war, it was a marvelous thing. It made, you know, it was one of the happiest moments in my life. Vietnam veteran Tommy Laughlin. And earlier we heard from Al Plapp. Both participated in a program called Soldier's Heart, that stages annual return visits for veterans to the places where they fought to promote healing and peacemaking between former adversaries. When a friend of mine and his girlfriend were murdered in 2010 by the woman's jealous ex-boyfriend, I was moved to find out if there were programs being tried out to help young people learn healthy relationship practices that might stem the tide of dating and domestic violence and such horrible incidents like the one that took my friend's life. I found that while such programs seemed scarce in the United States, one was used widely in Canadian schools. It's called the fourth R, R for relationships, 
and it was starting to get a few trials in the United States, particularly in the Bronx in New York, under the name Start Strong Bronx. I talked with the Canadian researcher who created the curriculum, Dr. David Wolf, about the importance of adults modeling healthy conflict management for young people. We don't talk enough about that, and what a good healthy relationship means is that a person can have an argument, a disagreement, and even raise their voice, become emotionally engaged, but not intimidate, not threaten, not hit, uh, and not punish in any way, and resolve the argument, even if it can't be resolved uh, in reality, like there's a decision can't be made, you come to an end point. The kids need to see that among their adults, among their uh, parents. They need to see that mom and dad can have an argument. They can have a fight. You could call it a fight, but a fight means that they're really angry at each other, but they don't hurt each other and they don't use abusive language. And at the end, they make up or they feel that they've gotten the issue out on the table. They've come to some resolution. And with older kids, especially with with uh, teens and preteens, it's important that the parents go to them and say, you know, we had a, you probably heard us really mad last night. And sometimes adults get like that. Sometimes kids do. And here's how we resolved it. Here's what we were mad about. Because otherwise kids will form in their mind that one or both parents might be at fault and they'll start to go down the wrong road. They need to hear their parents uh, uh, struggling with these issues and resolving them nonviolently. Right. Because uh, if the mantra is never argue in front of the kids, then the kids never learn to handle inevitable conflict in their own relationships. Well, that's right. And that's, the argument has to be, you know, has to be respectful. It's, it's that simple. And if you don't know how to do that or can't do it, then you are definitely staining your, your kids' own relationships with that. I'm 130, uh, 930. Listen, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Here's a clip from a film produced in part by Start Strong Bronx, whose director we'll visit with shortly. It's the story of one high school boy from a house where the father is abusing the mother and his girlfriend who's getting better relationship modeling at her home between her mother and father. In a climactic scene, the boy winds up showing early signs of abusive behavior to his dating partner because he's acting out on the only relationship modeling he's been exposed to. I need you here with me this summer. Rick, we got accepted. I said, I need you here this summer. We can talk about it. We can find a way to make it work. We don't need to talk about anything because you're going to be with me this summer. We're not done talking. Yes, we are. Why are you doing this to me? You're making me do this. Yeah, just like your mom made your dad hit her. You've begun testing this fourth R curriculum. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the results? To test it, we had to randomize schools. We had 20 schools in our school district that we randomized. And uh, we delivered the program in their grade 9 health class uh, in those 10 schools that received the program. There were, oh, I think 35 or 40 classes in all. And then we compare them to the schools that didn't get uh, the program and followed those kids for two and a half years till the end of grade 11 to see if they had reduced their dating violence, substance use, safer sex, and so forth. And dating violence was the first thing, the main thing we were looking at, and that was significantly reduced, especially for boys. Critically, you are able to have an effect on what they are doing to one another by teaching this information. Well, David Wolf, in the context of our program today, which uh, initiates from my experience with a friend being lost to uh, relationship homicide, make your case for 
how the work that you're doing and the programs that you've developed can really have an impact on reducing the number of horrible tragedies that we see all too often in our news. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, Paul, that that's an easy case for me to make because uh, we're talking about a public health issue now. We're talking about uh, roughly 30% of children um, are estimated to be abused in their lifetime. And that's based on adult samples, retrospectively, as well as current samples of, of youth. That means a lot of people out there aren't really uh, exposed to as good of models as they could be and may, may make a lot of mistakes in their relationship. So from a public health perspective, it's like fluoride in the water. Everyone needs to get a bit of dose of healthy relationships, alternatives to what they expect in a relationship to make some shifts in how they learn respect and such. And if we don't teach it in the school, it's haphazard, very haphazard. And they may make many errors in their relationships before they they might learn their lesson. So we can reduce that 30% of child abuse, 30% of domestic violence, and I don't know what effect in the long term it would have on homicidal violence. Uh, we have to keep in mind that with any prevention, the biggest challenge is that there will still be some tragedies. And that doesn't mean we give up the prevention. Uh, it means that we, we try even harder. David Wolf, psychology and psychiatry professor at the University of Toronto, discussing his work in co-creating the fourth R, a relationship-based violence prevention program for schools aimed at heading off domestic and dating violence behaviors. Alexandra Smith is director of a program called Start Strong Bronx, which is working in seven Bronx middle schools, applying the 4th R curriculum we heard about from David Wolf earlier. About a year ago, I did a focus group with students who had had 4th R. And this one girl raised her hand and she goes, oh, I like 4th R. I said, well, can you be specific with me? What do you really like about 4th R? She said, well, I don't have a good relationship with my mother. My mother and I argue all the time, but after I had learned from 4th R that we have to talk about our feelings, I told my mother, I have to tell you how I feel, because if I don't tell you how I feel, I'm going to get angry, and it's not going to be good for me. So I'm going to tell you how I feel, and that's just the way it's going down. And it's a great lesson. Here's this kid who's understanding that her feelings are really valuable, that her feelings are important to herself, and they're important in relationship to her mother. Can you imagine what kind of relationship she's going to have with a partner in the future? She's going to have the ability to express herself. She's going to have the ability to say, I matter. My feelings matter. I think those are really measurable outcomes. Alexandra Smith with the program Start Strong Bronx that's using a curriculum called the 4th R to help promote healthy relationship behaviors among school children with the hope of reducing the risk of dating and domestic violence and homicides later in life. Ahead, Dennis Kucinich and an Alternatives to Violence program that's making a difference in some American prisons. After this break...
I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special, featuring compelling moments from the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. The complete programs from which these excerpts are drawn can be heard anytime online at our website, peacetalksradio.com, or download the podcasts from iTunes by searching Peace Talks Radio. An organization called the Shift Network has tried to put the power of the Internet's reach to work by organizing an annual virtual online gathering of peacemakers called Peace Week. Anyone with a computer or smartphone can listen for free to the online conversations with this varied assortment of people working for peace around the globe. On one Peace Talks radio episode, we had the host of the conference, Stephen Dynan, guide us through some of the highlights of the 2010 Peace Week. We heard from eight of his many featured speakers, including U.S. Congressman Dennis Kucinich, whom Dynan interviewed himself for the program. I love Dennis. He's articulate. He's poetic. He's able to be spiritual and practical at the same time, and to do that in a political context is remarkable. I think he's also been quite visionary in, in moving forward the Department of Peace work and other uh, innovative legislation, and I, I think he was great during our session. Here's Dennis Kucinich during the Peace Week conversations. If, if the past, the present, and the future are indeed united, uh, then, then we are, are on a journey uh, that is timeless in nature and that uh, every moment when we act, uh, we are acting within the context of, of eternity. Eternity is not something beyond our grasp. It is something that we are within and contained within. And so uh, everything lends itself to uh, transformation. Uh, transformation is not simply a condition that happens at the, at the end of a journey. Uh, sometimes trans, you know, the journey is a transformative journey. The first step changes things. In some ways, we have to be more patient with ourselves and with each other so that we don't lock ourselves into believing because um, the conditions aren't exactly what we want at this moment. That will never happen. There's a, there's a sense uh, in which we need to plumb the deeper wisdom of uh, Shelley's um, poem, Prometheus Unbound, when he speaks of hope creating from its own wreck the thing it contemplates, that we have to be able to hope beyond hope and take our hopes, as uh, Paracelsus once wrote, through hope to the stars. We live in that place of spirit, which we then uh, bring into the material world to infuse it with spiritual principles that then uh, create the transformation. And that begins with uh, the stuff of hope. We're better to bring that than the U.S. Congress. I mean, I, I, I you know, it's a matter of, of practice here. Gandhi's life was about uh, testing principles and truth. And I think that wherever we work, and, you know, where I work, it's kind of the capital of our nation and sometimes the capital of polarized thinking. It's a, it's a good place to test the possibilities of, uh, of trying to move beyond positionality and beyond partisanship and and connect with people heart to heart and to see what can come of that. Uh, you should know that notwithstanding what appears to be internist and partisan warfare here in Washington, uh, that uh, many members have friends on both sides of the aisle. Uh, the thought of party, the idea that there is some uh, inchoate force out there called a party that should trump communication between individuals is pretty crazy. And, and so... We, there's a constant reaching back and forth across the aisle, but we're still not at the point where 
we can challenge the notion of partisanship successfully so that people have more options and more choices within the political system. So it's not just a binary you know, Democrat or Republican choice. I really think that America would benefit from more of a multi-party approach and have more choices. So I'm curious about what you feel are the most inspiring examples of reaching across uh, divides, particularly in the political con uh, context. What happens every time there's a peace agreement? I mean, when you, when you look at uh, what Jimmy Carter was able to put together uh, years ago in, in creating, you know, and making a move towards peace in the Middle East, uh, where, um, where you had, you know, the, the, the leader of Israel actually put his life on the line. You know, there are so many instances where uh, people are willing to take risks to try to make this a better world. Some of them are not that well heralded. But, all of, you know, there's healing that takes place all over the country. And, you know, there are people who try to uh, settle fights inside of a school, people who, uh, who see their loved ones involved in conflict and try to lead them out of it, people who see things happen on a in a workplace and try to uh, lend, a, lend a gentle tone to things. I mean, this, this is going on all around, all around the world, and we need to further that impulse and to encourage the uh, unfolding of what Franklin Roosevelt called many years ago the science of human relations in the workplace, in our schools, in our homes, and celebrate each person's contribution. Uh, you know, we have a Nobel Peace Prize that's awarded uh, uh, yearly, and, and yet uh, there should be recognition of individuals at very much a local level who, uh, who are performing works every day where they help to create peace. U.S. Congressman from Ohio Dennis Kucinich heard in 2010 talking with Stephen Dynan of the Shift Network and excerpted in an episode of Peace Talks Radio. Ineffective conflict resolution techniques sometimes lead to a prison sentence. Our Carol Boss talked with two former inmates who served 24 and 28 years respectively for second-degree murder convictions. While in prison, the two men, Carl Irons and James Alexander, also known as Alex, enrolled in an alternatives to violence program that for many years has intended to both reduce the level of violence in prison itself and prepare inmates for a life on the outside that wouldn't see them drawn back into the behaviors that got them into trouble. Pat Hardy is the president of the AVP Project, as it's called, in California, and she too talked with Carol Boss. How do you begin exploring in that first level, that first workshop, ideas about violence and nonviolence? Well, it's not like everybody doesn't know what those are. So we put two pieces of paper up on the wall, one that says violence and one that says nonviolence, and they start off brainstorming what is violence. And everyone comes up with things. And it, it can be everything from guns, guns to rudeness. This workshop is uh, an alternatives to violence workshop. A clip from a documentary film about the Alternatives to Violence project. So what we have to find out is uh, what is violence. My definition of violence is aggression. When you're abusing people, right, it causes people to be violent, you know. Lust, if violence is not physical, how is it not? If I take a child and I tell a child constantly that you're a bum, you're always going to be a bum just like your mother was a bum or just like this and that, I'm demeaning that child's spirit as a human being. That's an act of violence. I didn't touch that child with my hand. Carl Irons, what did you 
think when you attended your first meeting in group? What do you remember there that that struck you? The fact that AVP is an experiential workshop uh, rather than just like lectures or something uh, made it a lot more valuable for me. It gave me the opportunity to really explore how it applied to me. And one of the values of AVP was the fact that we explored what constituted violence. Uh, some of the obvious things, you know, like you know, fighting and you know, physical violence are are there, and everybody recognizes it. But it uh, it opened some discussion about uh, is drug use violence? Well, yeah, it, uh, we harm ourselves, and generally, people using drugs and alcohol uh, harm the people around them, their families and friends and stuff. So. For me, it expanded that view of what constituted violence into a larger larger theater. What did you think for the first time, Alex, when you went to to a workshop or, or one of those groups? Did you think, hey, that's for me, I want to be a part of this? I could not believe that people actually cared about people in prison. You know, when you find someone to treat you like a human being, uh, not like you are just uh, someone to be thrown away. It uh, has an impact on you, Carol. Uh, And it had a great impact on me. What would you say was one of the more valuable skills that you learned and were able to use? I would actually say assertive communication. Can you explain that? Well, being able to... to stand or sit across from an individual, uh, look them in the eye, and understand that that uh, they are not your superior as far as being better than you, uh, just because they may have you know more uh, money in their bank account, they may have a better suit and tie, they may uh, know how to shoot a basketball like Michael Jordan or say a speech like President Obama, it doesn't mean that they are a better human being than you are. So if you start with the, uh, from the place that you are equal with the person you're talking to and you are valued just as they are valued, you are loved just as they are loved by their family and friends, if you enter into a conversation from that perspective, it's difficult to be angry, to be violent, not to hear that other person. Pat, I'm wondering if there are, are any studies that demonstrate the effectiveness of the program, or is most of it anecdotal? And I'm talking about both in prison and once those who have participated in the workshops in prison, once they're on the outside. Yes, we have, um, we have a couple of studies when we're working on more that show two specific things. One, a reduction in the violence of the individual in a prison and that it, that it is long-lasting and that it does not, it reverts a little bit, but the, um, the level of anger and the level of, uh, the specifically level of anger is reduced because they now have these skills. Recidivism is also reduced. That means the, return, the rate that people return to prison as a result of having committed another crime. And that, that is lowered by 40% in people who've taken these workshops. Well, let me ask you, Alex, what do you think people who return to society from prison have to offer in a positive way that wouldn't occur to most people? 
I think the understanding of how precious human life is, how valuable each encounter with friends, family, associates, how we shouldn't take anything for granted, how it all means so much. It's, it's almost like you live in a community, uh, but you're isolated. You don't involve yourselves in social interests. I mean, self-interest is great, but when self-interest meets social interest, then the change in the community truly happens. If I can add something, the reason we should try to reduce violence in prison and offer things like AVP to them in prison is because the more we fall into the trap of dividing us from them, the more insidious that becomes. If we fall into the trap of thinking because they're in prison, they don't deserve the same treatment. They're not human beings in some respect. The easier it is to start thinking, well, the person down the street from me is a different race, so he's somehow not quite my equal. Or the person who lives across town because it's a different part of town or a, the different socioeconomic status and all of those things, the more we can – the more we allow ourselves to divide – us from them, the more that creeps into society as a whole. That's former prison inmate Carl Irons. We also heard from former inmate James Alexander. Both experienced reform during their extended sentences for murder with the help of the Alternatives to Violence Project, which is in a number of prison facilities across the country. The project offers voluntary workshops both inside and outside of prison that deeply explore the nature of violence and more peaceful conflict resolution options. Just ahead, an interview with a former Nobel Peace Prize winner, as well as an interview about a Nobel Peace Prize winner who's in prison and can't be interviewed. When Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special continues right after this break. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special, featuring compelling moments from our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. The complete programs from which these excerpts are drawn can be heard anytime online at our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can also read partial transcripts, see pictures, and link to other resources on each episode, all at peacetalksradio.com. For example, you can hear our entire hour about the 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner Liu Xiaobo, Chinese poet and dissident who was unable to attend his Nobel Prize ceremony in 2010 because he remained in prison for his outspoken support of reforms in China. On Peace Talks Radio, we talked with Jeffrey Yang, who was charged with translating some of Xiaobo's poetry for release in English. 
Thank you. It's nice to uh, be here. What do you think Liu Jiabo's writing has to offer to the curious who would like to explore his work in terms of peace messages that they could apply to their own lives? Yeah, I think so. I mean, definitely. He's uh, he, he's lived an extraordinary life. I mean, he, um, so it's it's also one of the life and the work. And so what he's writing in his poems about memory and remembering this time and, and how relevant it is today and how relevant memory is for us to progress as people you know that's already that's uh, you know an amazing message to 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 see through his life and his work but also all that he's been through he he's he's so much in different ways emphasizes the that he bears i mean he bears no hate he the the the, the famous speech he gave or the the words he he spoke at his trial um I have no enemies, you know, is basically everything that he's been through. He doesn't harbor any hatred. He understands kind of a bigger picture of how things work and how the way power structure works and that hatred is one thing that is needs to be overcome if we're even going to be talking about peace, you know. Well, Jeffrey Young, as we move toward conclusion, could you read some excerpts from the June 4th elegies that you find especially compelling? Sure. Um, so this is a um, series of poems from June 4th elegies. It's from it's the book Liu Xiaobo dedicates to the mothers of Tiananmen and for those who can remember. Monument waves of weeping, marble grain fused with blood-stained veins, Belief in youth beaten beneath the tank's rust-chained tracks. Ancient story of the East leaks out new hope unexpectedly. The glorious crowds have little by little disappeared, like a river that slowly, steadily dries away. Landscape on both shores transformed to stone. Every throat has been strangled by fear. Every trembling has traced the dissipated nighter smoke. Only the executioner's steel hood glints, luminous glints. Two. I cannot recognize the flag anymore. The flag, like an unknowing child, flung upon mother's corpse, returns home wailing. I cannot tell day from night anymore. Time's been petrified by gunshots, as if a paralytic without memory. Gun's barrel braces my lower back. I've discarded my passport and identity card. In the bayonet and flame dawn, that once familiar world cannot find a handful of dirt to bury itself in. Red-bared heart collides with iron and steel. No water, no greenness of earth. Duties ravaged sunlight. Jeffrey Young is a poet and literary editor who is creating a translation of the June 4th Elegies, written by 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner Liu Jiabo, the Chinese teacher and poet who has been in prison since 2009 for his calls for reform in the Chinese government. Unable to actually speak with the 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner, we were able to reach the 2008 winner for a conversation on Peace Talks Radio. That was former Finnish president and international mediator Marty Atasari. 
best known for his peace negotiations in Kosovo, Indonesia, and Namibia, as it achieved its independence from South Africa in the 1990s. Atasari spoke to me about his affection for South African President Nelson Mandela, who's long inspired his work. I learned to know him well before he became uh, president when he was released from Robben Island. I I think he comes close to a saint that many people say that that one should not say this, but but I I do say it because if you are kept in, in, in prison for 26 years and you come out without any bitterness towards those who had put you there, and you might have think that it was totally unfairly that you were put to jail, or Robben Island for that matter. Because he realized that that was the only way how, how you could start building a new South Africa. It also shows how important the role of one single human being is in, in these processes. And particularly, not the mediator so much, but... <laughs> on the side of the parties who have to make an agreement. Therefore, when I was two, 2009 asked to join the elders group with Mandela and, and Archbishop Tutu, I wrote to Archbishop Tutu that this is one of the requests that I can't say no. In my office, I have only two paintings. They are both presents from, from President Mandela to me and my wife and I will not allow any other paintings on my walls. I have also a piece of rock from Robben Island, the chalk rock that he, he gave to me when I was visiting him when he was president. That reminds me every day that there's not a single problem in the world that cannot be solved. 2008 Nobel Peace Prize winner Marty Atasari on Peace Talks Radio. There's a common belief that military and defense spending is good for a nation's economy. Economic experts that we talked with on one episode of Peace Talks Radio admitted that war is good for some sectors of an economy, but they also said that their research suggests that more peaceful nations reap even bigger financial benefits from peace. Steve Kilalea is founder of the Australian-based Institute for Economics and Peace. His organization publishes an annual ranking of the nations of the world, from most peaceful to least peaceful. It's called the Global Peace Index, and you can see their latest report from a link at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Suzanne Kreider talked with Steve Kilalea. Why should business care about peace? Business needs to care about peace because I think in many ways it's a lost dimension of one of the things which uh, affect its markets. For example, we've done work which has analysed the global economy, and what we've found from that is that if we look in 2010, $8 trillion were lost through violence. Now, it's very, very hard to imagine a world which is actually 100% peaceful, but I think we could all imagine a world which is, let's say, 25% more peaceful, and that would equate to $2 trillion. Now, just to try and put that into some sort of perspective, that would be enough to pay off uh, Greece, Ireland, Portugal's debt. It would be enough to fund the carbon emissions, the 2020 carbon emissions, which the EU are after. It would also be enough to pay the Millennium Development Goals and also leave $1 trillion over for additional economic expansion. Now, this is not to say that it's make a moral judgment that we don't need police 
or that we don't need an army. We certainly need a strong, robust army. But the question is, what is the size and what is it trying to accomplish? President Eisenhower talked about a military-industrial complex, that a lot of the economy was building up around the military. What's your vision of a peace-industrial economy? How could we develop that? Well, we came up with the concept of the peace industries, and we all know what the military-industrial complex is. We A lot of people know the size of it and its relevance to the economy, even the major companies within it. But if I talk to you about peace industries, well, most people would start to think about uh, maybe some NGOs, maybe some Buddhist monks selling incense or something like that. But actually, peace industries are all those companies and businesses whose markets actually expand with increasing peacefulness and whose cost structures decrease. Now, we did a survey with the UN Global Compact, and they did a survey of their... uh, chief executive officers and CFOs who were members. And they've got some thousands as members. And the survey sample, 80% believe that the size of their markets increased with increased peacefulness, and 79% believed that their costs actually decreased as you increase peace. Why would the costs decrease? Well, it's a whole lot of inherent uh, uh, friction trapped in an economy uh, because of violence. So just, I'll give, just give you a couple of really classic examples. So one, we'll think about shopping. Now, if you're in the middle of a war zone, who wants to go out shopping? So if you actually decrease the violence, people are more likely to end up shopping, whereas in a highly peaceful neighbourhood, it'll be the way you might spend a leisurely afternoon. Similarly, security comes at a cost. You've got security gil- the grills, you've got security guards, and cameras and all sorts of other things as well. Now, if we start to also look at management time, another example which is just really quite practical, look at New York today. You go into any meeting in New York and you lose five to ten minutes with the security guards downstairs. Now, how many meetings actually happen in New York a day? Ten million? Multiply that by five to ten minutes and that's a substantial amount of money. Now, I'll just tell you how the Global Peace Index came about. So I've got a private foundation. It's active in about 13 different countries. It would have been about seven years ago. I was wandering through the Congo, looking at some of the projects we had there, and I was just wondering, what were the opposite of all these war-torn places which I was going to? What were the most peaceful nations in the world were, and what could we learn about it? Did some searches on the internet couldn't find anything. And then as a research further, there was nothing which ranked the nations of the world by their peacefulness. So if a simple businessman like myself can be wandering through Africa and wonder what are the most peaceful nations in the world and hasn't been done, what do we know about peace? Do you realise today you could go into any major university in the world and you won't find a chair on peace economics? Yet most businessmen believe that their markets increase with peace and their cost structures decrease. Similarly, you could go into any of the major literature departments of any of the major universities in the world and you won't find a course on the literature of peace. Yet most of your listeners at some stage of their life would have been profoundly moved by some work on peace. That's Steve Kilalea with the Institute for Economics and Peace. Differences in religion have driven much conflict throughout history, which has left many devoted to peace longing for better communication and understanding between people of different religions. Those sentiments were the topic of a book and conference entitled Liberty and Tolerance in an Age of Religious Conflict. 
Suzanne Kreider attended the 2011 conference and talked with several panel members and book chapter contributors, including Hedy Amir Ahmadi, an attorney, author, and founder and president of the World Organization for Resource Development and Education, which works to improve communication between Muslim and non-Muslim communities. What I'm wondering about is if there's something inherently exclusive about religions. Well, I'm a Sufi practitioner, so we have a philosophy that religions are basically like boats in the ocean trying to get to the other side of the shore. And it's it doesn't matter what boat you get in, you just get in and you go and, and you'll get there as long as you try, as long as you're paddling. So uh, I'm not so, in, in my personal, professional, I'm not so concerned about which boat people get into, just the fact that they don't try to overturn the ones next to them. So it's, it, that's really the most important concept is this notion of acceptance. So not just tolerating, uh, enduring and putting up with other people, but accepting them and, and looking over at them in the other boat and being like, hey, how you doing? Are you tired? Or, or, are, you, are you accomplishing what you need to accomplish? And, because it has nothing to do with my boat. It has nothing to do with my journey. It is just basically another human being living their life and trying to find their way. Except, isn't there a part of many religions that encourages followers to proselytize or to try to gain new members, where we are supposed to, like, drag somebody else's boat over and say, hey, jump on my boat? Well, well, I guess, well, in Islam, we do, we do have a notion of proselytizing, but no compulsion. So it's like saying, it's like saying that we think we have a nicer boat, you know, and saying, well, we have a motor and you're paddling. Don't you want a, a motorized boat instead of a paddle? So it's this notion of, of trying to bring people to what we believe is a better product or a better path. But there cannot be compulsion in that. So it's a really fine line between educating people about an alternative and forcing them to accept that alternative. And I think, you know, largely, I don't think it's really a Jewish uh, phenomenon. It's mostly a Christian and Muslims uh, having that understanding that you can preach the word of God and helping to bring people to that word, but you can't shove it down their throat. And, and I think that's important for both our communities to, to be wary of. Edia, what are some resources within the Muslim tradition that can be supportive of tolerance? Oh, goodness. I I cite to uh, a dozen of them in my presentation, whether it's from the Quran and the commandments of God directly about respecting religious diversity and that God did not make all human beings the same. He made us nations and tribes to know each other from the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad himself creating the Pact of Medina with the Jewish and pagan tribes and giving them equal rights and protection against uh, discrimination and protection in time of war, uh, to the Sultan of Morocco giving an an edict about protecting the Jewish population and their rights to to their artisans to be paid equal wages and for them to be able to participate in civil service. So it's existed throughout history, but unfortunately it is in the past over a hundred, you know, about a hundred years that this tradition has been slowly undermined by a fringe group of radical Islamists that want to reinterpret and redefine the way Muslims interact with non-Muslims. And so it's the responsibility of the mainstream Muslim community to reclaim the image of Islam, but it's also, uh, we, we can't do that without the help of non-Muslims in 
joining hands with Muslims to try to help them overcome the voice of the extremists and the actions of the extremists and to help also our media portray a positive image of of the good things that some of the Muslim community members do. What about non-Abrahamic faiths? Uh, actually, I mentioned that in my talk, too, that um, rulers throughout the Muslim empires of the past have included Zoroastrians as people of the book, meaning protected communities, uh, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the temples of worship were protected. So it's not just protecting people of the book, it's protecting humanity and the importance of us being descendant from one father and one mother, as, as Islam believes, and that God created all human beings. And, and I opened, actually, with a story about uh, Abraham and the Zoroastrian, the fire worshiper who he ate a meal with and insisted that he recite the name of God. And, and the Zoroastrian said, you can't buy my faith with one meal. And uh, Abraham got mad and sent him out. And God said, I, I, I've been feeding this man for 90 years, and I never asked him to take my name. And you insist on him taking my name for one meal? Go back and bring him back and apologize. So that's that's what Islam believes. That's the foundation of our concept of religious liberty and religious freedom that the, the people have a right to choose. Hedia Miramadi, working to improve communication between Muslim and non-Muslim communities. Also on that Peace Talks radio episode, we talked with a woman working to improve communication between Israelis and Palestinians, and others representing Christian faiths, all speaking about finding common ground among religious and non-religious people to help promote peace. Check out the other interviews at peacetalksradio.com. We'll close this special collection of compelling moments from our series with a little music. We asked composer and performer and music history buff Jane Ellen to pick some examples from the world of classical music of composers trying to express their wishes for peace, often in the midst of their own experiences with war. Her final selection, among eight pieces we featured, was a composition that was released on the eve of an auspicious date in history, as we'll hear in my conversation with Jane Ellen. Carl Jenkins is a Welsh composer, and unless you're familiar with the set of recordings under the title of Adiemus, his name may not be immediately recognizable, and yet he is one of the foremost composers of the 20th and now the 21st century. He received a commission to write this Mass for the millennium, the turning of the thousand years. At this time, he again was given free reign as to how he should write it, but they did request that he write something that dealt with peace and hopefully now a new millennium of peace. To write the Mass, he went back to a famous medieval tune called L'Homme Armé, or The Armed Man. The tune was so popular in the late Middle Ages that literally dozens, if not perhaps over a hundred different Masses, were written using this particular song as the theme behind the liturgical music. This was a common practice. It was often done so that the common man who didn't understand Latin would at least have some idea of the music and find something to which they could relate. Something familiar, yeah. Exactly. By going back to this original tune, he used it as a bookmark. He would begin his Mass with the tune, but then end the Mass with the tune totally transformed in a completely different way. But it took a while to get there. He would use texts by Rudyard Kipling. He would use the Muslim call to prayer, perhaps the first time we've ever had that used in a work of this sort. And in the middle of the piece, he would use a poem by a Japanese poet 
who had survived Hiroshima but in the 50s was dying of leukemia due to radiation poisoning. So you have a work that's overall mixing different languages, different time periods, different ethnicities, ending up in this great cry for peace. Well, we'll listen to the conclusion of The Armed Man, A Mass for Peace. London Philharmonic, Carl Jenkins, conducting as well. Excerpts from The Armed Man, A Mass for Peace, composed and conducted by Carl Jenkins with the London Philharmonic. The piece was composed in the year 2000. This particular recording was interestingly released September 10th, 2001. To think that this came out the day before 9-11 is startling, to say the least. Music historian Jane Ellen. To hear the complete programs from which all of today's excerpts came, go online to peacetalksradio.com and seek out our 2011 season. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all of the programs in our series going back to 2003. Order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a podcast or our newsletter. And it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station so please consider a donation. For more frequent updates and inspiration, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the FNS Fund of the Santa Fe Community Foundation, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. For Carol Boss and Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. (music) 